In alhamdulillah, as-salatu wa salam ala rasulillah, as-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhum. The next uh, session, insha'Allah, is entitled Moral Problems of Society, Islam's Guidance for the Welfare of All. And we have uh, Sheikh Rafal Ghafir to give this talk. And as usual, there's one and a half hour, inshallah, assigned for this session. And uh, if the Sheikh likes, he can spend the whole one and a half hours. Or you can write your questions, inshallah, they'll be answered either in a separate session. Or if we have time, we'll take some questions during this session, inshallah. So I now hand over, inshallah, to the Sheikh. Jazakallah khairan. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله عز وجل وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Yesterday Sheikh Jafar Idris gave his presentation and before he started he made a disclaimer which I liked and I'm going to um, follow his footsteps. If you all remember, he said that he was not infallible and that he, made, he might make mistakes. So if it is true, take it. If it isn't, throw it away. And I like that, and, and I'm going to do the same thing with slight modification. And that is, indeed, I am infallible. And what I'm about to say, inshallah, might be right and might be wrong. If it is right, it is definitely from Allah Azza wa Jal, to whom we say thank you and to whom we praise. And if it isn't right, then it is indeed from the shaitan and myself, where I would seek refuge in Allah Azza wa Jal from the shaitan and ask Allah Azza wa Jal for forgiveness even before I start. The topic, obviously, is something that touches our life on a daily basis. These issues that are mentioned in your booklet, just to read them as labels take a while. We're asked to discuss unwanted pregnancies, adultery, fornication, breakdown of the institution of marriage and family unit, disrespect of the elders and teachers, drugs, alcoholism, smoking, extravagance and wasted, child abuse, pedophile, homosexuality, wife battering. There is no illness that's not mentioned in, in this. And naturally, if you're going to take it one by one and try to tackle it, uh, not only the whole GMS conference will not be enough, but probably will take uh, a long time to deal with each one of them separately. 
But if we look at them, they're really one thing. And they emanate from the same source. It's just a manifestation of the same illness. Except that it shows itself in a variety of ways. The question is, are we as Muslims, be it individuals or as organizations, responsible for the illness of these people whom we live among? Naturally, some of these illnesses affect our societies. I mean, we cannot escape the fact or hide from the fact that some of us smoke, which is haram. We cannot hide the fact that some of us are extravagant in our lifestyle, when we should not be. And we cannot get away from the fact that some of us are wasteful. Just look around you and we see how wasteful we are. And for those of you who went to Hajj, for instance, you see how much food is wasted, especially at the day of Arafat, where people are supposedly worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the best time, in the best place, in the best time of the year. And yet, we waste without even thinking. Piles and piles of rice and meat just got thrown away. That's wastage. So the illnesses that we try to solve, actually, in some of them, we ourselves partake in it. How many of our men actually beat their wives? And how many abuse their children? And how many are disrespectful to themselves? Because if you don't respect yourself, you're not going to respect the others. And there's a lot of us who don't respect themselves. Disrespectful to the others, being very inconsiderate. And of course, disrespectful to the elders, to the teachers, the scholars, and so on. So these illnesses are not unique to the non-Muslim uh, society. Some of their illnesses had dropped on us because we have lived here long enough. Unfortunately, um, to a certain degree or not, our values have not rubbed very well on them as much as their poor values had rubbed on us. So the question then comes, are we responsible for their ills? Are we responsible for their social problems if we consider ourselves as du'at, as da'ya, as caller to the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The answer is not that easy. The answer can be yes. Yes, we are responsible. And the answer can be no. We're not responsible. That's their problem. Which is probably the better answer of the two, to, your, to our surprise. Why do I say that? I, I try not to inject my opinions here because my opinion has no place. But if we look at the Qur'an, which is our guide, in dealing with the social problems of communities and societies who were non-Muslims. And how do you know that these societies were non-Muslims? Because they had a prophet who was sent to them. And you can judge from what these prophets and these messengers have said as to what was the social ailment and the social illnesses and diseases in those communities. And, and, how, was, and how did these prophets approach them? Because remember, that it's not only Rasulullah is a guide to us, he is the guide, but also all the other prophets and messengers are also examples and, and guidance for us because if they were not, why would Allah mention them in the Quran? 
وإلى عاد أخاهم هودا قال يا قوم اعبدوا الله ما لكم من إله غيره وإلى مدين وإلى ثمود أخاهم صالحا قال يا قوم اعبدوا الله ما لكم من إله غيره وإلى مدين أخاهم شعيبا قال يا قوم اعبدوا الله ما لكم من إله غيره ولقد أرسلنا نوحا إلى قومه فقال يا قوم اعبدوا الله ما لكم من إله غيره They all say the same statement They just repeated time and again Different people Different prophets Different time But the message is always one and the same Even though These communities and these societies had a variety of illness and a variety of diseases, social diseases. They didn't all have the same social disease, yet the prescription was one and the same. The prescription, the remedy, the cure was one and the same. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, and to Ad we send their brother, Hud, who told them, the meaning of the ayah, who told them, my people, Worship Allah alone because you have no God but Him. And then we go to Thamud, and Thamud, we have sent to them their brother Salih, who told them, O oh my people, worship Allah alone because you have no other God but Him. And to Madian, we have sent their brother Shaib, who told them, O oh my people, do not, uh, my people, worship Allah alone because you have no other God but Him. And we have sent Nuh. To his people, and he said, Oh, my people, worship Allah, you have no other God but Him. And we know that all these people, different of them, they were sent to people, and, and their people had different ailments and different diseases. The people of Ad, their problem was that they were so intoxicated with power. They were so intoxicated with power. They said that, who is going to challenge us? We were so mighty and we were so powerful that we don't have to obey Allah. And who is Allah anyway? That was, a social, that was their social ailment. Thamud, on the other hand, they were very good people in handicraft and good engineers that they build homes and houses and carve the mountains. No one can match even today what they have achieved. And the, the ruins are still in evidence in many places in the world that you go and see how they carve their places. Not only homes, but palaces, meeting places, arenas, arenas. Um, just carved in the stone that no power on earth today can match it. Yet, Salih told them the same message that alayhi salam, the same message that Hud alayhi salam told his people. Median on the other hand, their social problem was that they cheated on the scale and the measure. They were cheaters. And yet, when Median was sent to them, he told them, but when Shu'aib was sent to them, he told them the same message that Hud and Salih said. And the same thing for Nuh. The problem with the people of Nuh is that they were idolaters. They were idolaters. And he had the same thing, same message. And of course, the people of Lut, who practice homosexuality, and the same message went for them. 
That is to tell us that if you want to solve people's problems, you do not go after the symptom. You, do, you go after the disease, the illness itself. Because what is the value of treating someone who has pneumonia where the lung is inflamed and you give them cough medicine? As a matter of fact, cough medicine is harmful under these circumstances because you're preventing the sputum from coming out and just compounding the problem. You think that you're helping them, but you're really not. And what is the value if you have a brain tumor that's causing severe headache to give them aspirin? What is aspirin is going to do to the brain tumor? Nothing. So if you go to the people of Lut and you preach to them about the evils of homosexuality, that's not going to solve the problem. Because the problem itself is not the homosexuality. The problem is that what brought that sexuality to begin with? Why did these people deviate? I mean, that was new, the, our, the, the first human being was Adam, alayhi salam. Was he homosexual? Then came his wife. Was she homosexual? Then they had their children. Were any one of them homosexual? So where did they bring this from? And why did they deviate after a while? And, and what made them even think of such a deviant behavior? It's a behavior that defies the norm. So for you to go and tackle only that issue without addressing the main problem, you're not going to solve it. You might be looked at, and this is what I want you to remember, that you will be looked at as a good guy, a social reformer. You go to the people of Median and say, people don't cheat on the scale, this is no good. And your statement is correct. But what is its value is that you are a social reformer. And a social reformer at any given time might be accepted, but maybe a generation or two will be rejected because the norm of people will change. So what have you accomplished? You have not accomplished much. You might have put a small dent in the problem itself, tried to fix it, but you're not able to fix it as a whole. And that's why you never see in the Qur'an that the prophets actually went to their people only to solve their social problems or the illnesses that they have without addressing the real main problem. And all these prophets, alayhim salam ajma'in, understood that the main problem here that we're dealing with is that in the beginning, these people deviated because they did not follow the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which is the theme of this meeting and it should be the theme of the previous meeting and the theme of the coming meetings and all the time until we die. And that is, you want to solve problems? Solve the issue of Tawheed. Address it from the angle of Tawheed. When you address it from the angle of Tawheed, you will have absolutely no problem. You can solve any problem that exists and any problem in the future that might arise. And we have our own experience with this. This is not an abstract thing, even though it is well documented in the Qur'an. Early on when we were young and naive, 
Anytime the non-Muslims wanted to know something about Islam, we will rush and go and give talks and give lectures. And I think over here is no different. And that they will ask you to come and speak to this group of women, uh, this group of people in this university or that church. And they will choose a topic for you that's bothersome to them. And they want you to explain it so that uh, they will uh, uh, decide whether Islam is really the appropriate or the proper thing or not. And we go as naive, and we go and rush. And the favorite topic that always these people would like to hear is that, I'm sure you you have the same thing here, status of women in Islam. And you will see that there are books and tapes about this topic. To me, this means nothing. And it should mean nothing. Because what difference does it make if you say the status of woman is this or the status of woman is that in this religion or that religion? What are you going to say anyway? What are you going to say? Are you going to say that in Islam, the typical presentation will be, oh, you see, Muslims were, women were oppressed before Rasulullah and, and Islam came and gave them their rights without even asking, look how great it is, and you protected them. Look, there is a whole surah in the, in the book of Allah called the surah of women, and we keep on and on, and we think that we really did a good job. And at the end, you know what happens? The question comes up. And it should come up. That, you know, I don't really understand what you're saying. You're saying you treat the women very well. How come that you, the men, are allowed to marry four women while the woman is not allowed to marry four men? Answer this. Answer this if you think you did a good job. How are you going to answer them? You can go hide and give around and give all sorts of... You will not be able to convince them. And they should not be convinced because you have no convincing answer if you go from this angle. Why? Because you're a social reformer. You're not a da'i. You came as a social reformer. And a social reformer is that, only a social reformer. You might be able to convince some people, you might not be able to convince others, but you will not solve the problem. And alhamdulillah, it didn't take us long to realize the fault that we were doing. We will never ever talk about these issues anymore. If someone asks, come and talk about the beauty of the judicial system in Islam, as beautiful as it is, I refuse to talk about it. You come and talk to us about the family structure of Islam, perfect. I will never talk about it. It defeats the purpose. It means nothing. But what we did instead and we still do, is that the first thing you start with is the tawheed. You start telling these people, what does it mean, la ilaha illallah? And how does it impact afterwards? See, la ilaha illallah is not words. Unfortunately, some of us have been raised and coached and taught, and we still are. La ilaha illallah is just words. Actually, la ilaha illallah is not words, it's action. And I don't know how many of us actually understand that. And I don't know how many of us actually teach Tawheed in a practical sense. It's not enough to say, La ilaha illallah. Oh yes, I believe there is only one God. Well, so, so do the Jews. So do the Christians. And so many other religions. We believe in one God. Name it whatever you name it. But it's one God. But when it comes to practicality, it isn't.
I understand Tawheed differently. I understand Tawheed that if Allah Azza wa Jal tells me that He is a Razak, that He is the one who provides for me. Because part of Tawheed is that we know that there is attribute, there are attributes that belongs to Allah Azza wa Jal to describe Him. And one of these attributes is that He is a Razak. That He is the one who provides. One will say, well, so what? Okay, I agree that he provides. But how does it impact on my life? If it doesn't impact on your life, then you really have not understood what Tawheed is all about. The way I would understand it, that impact on my life, is that since he is the one who provides for me, then it will not make any sense for me to, number one, be ungrateful to him. If I'm to give you a present today as just a watch that I carry in my pocket is worth 10 or 20 or 50 or even 100 pounds, I would own you, practically, because if you have any decency, you will always respect me or never annoy me, because I give you a gift. You didn't ask for it, and I didn't ask for anything in return. A watch, what's the value of the watch? And yet when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us everything, we don't show the same respect and the same gratitude then there is a problem with our tawheed. But what is more important is that since he is the one who provides for me, I don't have to worry about that if I close my shop and left my job to go and devote the 10-15 minutes for Salat al-Dhuhr or Asr in the masjid, my provision, my sustenance is not going to decrease. How should it? Because I am worshipping him and showing, showing him my gratitude. Do you think he will decrease my income? No way. But when we don't practice the tawheed, we will say, well, if I close, if I earn a hundred dollars, a hundred pounds a day over a span of ten hours, that's ten pounds an hour. And if I go to the masjid for fifteen minutes, that's two pounds and fifty pennies that I will lose. Right? Right? Well, it is wrong. I mean, right by our standard. But it is wrong by the standard of Allah Azza wa because we did not understand Tawheed. Had we understood it, say, the provision comes from Allah and He had guaranteed. He had guaranteed that in heavens is your provisions. And whatever you promised. Our provisions had been laid down for us even before we were born. Did you all know this or not? Does anybody have any doubt? That our provisions are already set. It's not going to be less, not going to be more, even before we were born, while we are in, other, in our mother's wombs. So then, if I want to practice Tawheed, I know my provision will come. It's not going to decrease. But I have to earn it. And I have to work for it to be earned. Then I have a choice. I have a choice of going out there and earning my livelihood in a halal way or a haram way. See, if you go and rob a bank, that's a way of getting a provision, isn't it? It's an income. And it is part of your risk. It will be part of the one, the risk that Allah Azza had designated for you. Or you can go and sell and buy or be employed or have a halal job. It, you will have the same provision. 
It's up to you how you get your provision. But it will be the same. It will not be more. It will not be less. This is the Tawheed we're talking about. So the Tawheed is the one that changes people's lives. And that's why you see a very strange statement. It's not strange for the one who understands the Tawheed. When Shu'aib ordered his people to La ilaha illallah in making the salat, his people were amazed and said, قَالُوا يَا شُعَيْبُ أَصَلَاتُكَ تَأْمُرُنَا أَن نَتْرُكَ مَا يَعْبُدُ آبَاؤُنَا أَوْ أَن نَفْعَلَ فِي أَمْوَالِنَا مَا نَشَاءُ He said, what if it's Shu'aib? Are you telling us that the salah, and here salah is in reference to ibadah as a whole, the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal, and you're not going to make salat if you don't have tawheed. They told him that your salah, which is the metaphor for tawheed, is going to make us change our lifestyle so that we will leave what our fathers used to worship and will stop us from doing with our wealth as we please. They understood what's the ramification of tawheed. And this is why we say that if you want to solve people's problems, you have to go to the source and you have to go to the tawheed. Never ever will I ever talk about, I will not advise you to talk about these issues as women in Islam without addressing it from the concept of Tawheed. When we started doing this, we never ever heard anyone ask the question, how come the women don't get married to four men? Why didn't they ask the question? Why? Because now they look at you not as a social reformer, you're not speaking on your own. You're speaking on behalf of the creator of the universe. So if they have a problem, then they have a problem with the creator of the universe. So they will not dare ask that question. Now they understood where you're coming from. Before that, you are to be challenged. Once you came from the point of Tawheed and said, you know, the woman in Islam is because Allah Azza wa Jal who created everything. He is, who is this, this, this and that and we are obligation to him, this, this, and that, have said pertaining to this issue, this, 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 and that. You referred it to Allah Azza wa Jal. Now it is unchallengeable anymore. He cannot challenge it. Because it's coming from a supreme being who is way above and way beyond even our comprehension and our capabilities. So whatever you say then will be taken as its real value and will not be challenged. And the same thing about the judicial system in Islam, the same thing about the family values in Islam, and so on. Last month, I was invited by a group of women who are so-called the pro-choice. Pro-choice meaning these women who advocate that the women who get pregnant have a choice of having abortion. In other words, there's nothing wrong with abortion. If they feel that they want to have abortion, they can abort at any time without any legal or spiritual or moral uh, ramification. And I was to talk about what Islam thought about this. And you feel after a while that you're out of place. Because how can you address this issue? There were few speakers, of course, each one from different organizations. And there was this minister. A minister over there does not mean minister as in government. Minister, you see, the priest is for the Catholics and the minister for the Protestants. So there was a minister who stood up 
and talked about, you know, how in Christianity everything is free and we should encourage people to have their freedom of choice and this is the way it should be and so on. And after my presentation, I did what I said, this is not to be done. Allah created us for this and that. And then he stood up and said, no, because if we do not allow women to have abortion at will, freedom, then you will see what you see just a few blocks away. The meeting was held in, in downtown uh, Washington, D.C., not far from the White House and the Congress. For those of you who have been in Washington, D.C., um, the capital of the United States, just a few steps you go outside the White House, you are in a different world. The White House is all nice and clean, secure. Just a block or two, it's a jungle. It's a jungle. You don't feel safe. Drugs all over the place. Homeless roaming the town. It's just like you live in two different cities, two different walls, and they're only one block away. He said, just go out there and you will see on your way that how many children are in the streets. They're filthy, they're dirty, they're not taken care of because their mothers are not able to take care of them. And they're, of course, they're all were born out of wedlock and their fathers are not there. So what is better for these children to live like this or that we prevent them from coming to this world to begin with? It's a social problem. How do you answer it? Well, the easy answer is that, yeah, you're right. You know, why should we have children who might be criminals in the future? Because if you leave them out in the streets, what are they going to learn just outside the White House? Or even inside the White House? It's not going to make any difference. I mean, one of the president did something worse. At any rate, so what are they going to learn? If we think just superficially, we would like a quick fix, the aspirin for headache of the brain tumor, you say, yeah, sure, you know, why not? But that's not really the answer. The answer is that, why are these children out there in the streets to begin with? Well, you know, because their mothers were pregnant, okay? Why were their mothers pregnant? Ah, oh, come on, you know, because, you know, she had a relationship with a man. Well, where is the man? Oh, they are not married. Okay. Why are they not married? Well, this is the norm. But that's not the norm. This has just recently became the norm. What was it before? Well, you know, things have changed. So these people are not married. Well, why were not married? Because... The lifestyle had changed. Well, why did the lifestyle have changed? Because their parents did not enforce the true value on them. Well, why didn't their parents enforce their true value on them? Well, before, people used to be judged by certain code of morals which are derived from a higher moral authority. Okay, how come these people are not having high moral authority? Well, they're slipping away from it. They are not going to churches anymore. Well, why are they not going to churches anymore? Because the churches have no real answer to their problems, and the churches were very lenient. Whatever you please, do it. So, we really have to be like the detectives. Take it step by step by step by step. And in the end, no matter which answer you get, 
you always arrive to one source. And that is, there is no high moral authority that has a jurisdiction over you to control your behavior, therefore you do whatever you please. So, you start cheating, you can justify it. Everybody cheats, why shouldn't I? You know, you look like a fool if you don't cheat in among of cheaters. That's what it appears. So I have to cheat like they do. Everybody lies, so I have to lie like them. Everybody fornicates. Are you going to tell me that I'm going to be the only saint where everybody's having a good time and having fun? Everybody drinks. I will look as an oddball if everybody is a drinking and I'm not a drinking. And you keep on and on. Where is that high moral uh, authority? The book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How many ayahs in the book of Allah Azza wa I always ask questions not to ask the answer, just to keep you awake. <laughs> How many ayahs do we have in the books of Allah Azza wa You raised your hand. Yes, you. Jazakallahu khayran. Over 6,000. Out of these 6,000, there are 200 plus ayat which deals with al-ahkam. You know, the do's and the don'ts and, and what will be the reward and what will be the punishment for this and that. 200 of them. And these, you know, deal with the marriage, deal with the selling and buying, uh, dealing how you treat your wife and you deal with your children, how to treat the orphans, these called ayatul ahkam. And when you look at these ayatul ahkam, you see them invariably, all of them. Either it starts with, or in the middle, or in the end, you have the element of taqwallah, taqwallah. The judge in all these elements of ahkam is taqwallah. Taqwa, the fear and being conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the guide because if you're going to enforce it with police, there will not be enough policemen on earth to guide. How are you going to guide against a man abusing his wife? How can you do that? You're going to put a policeman in every bedroom in, in every person's house? And who is going to look on the one who is guarding your own? It's impossible. So what is the system that Allah Azza wa Jal had designed? Is the system of taqwa. You be your own policeman. What is the punishment for the one who abuses his wife? If someone is caught abusing his wife, what is the punishment in Islam? Tell me, those of you who memorize the Qur'an, what is it? None, there is none in the Qur'an, it doesn't tell us what to do. What is the punishment for the one who abuses and misappropriates the fund of the orphan whom you are entrusted with? Nothing, it doesn't say, it doesn't tell that you have to be in jail, prison, it doesn't say that you have to be lashed, it doesn't say that you have to be beheaded, nothing, none of that elements. But what there is, is taqwallah. Taqwallah. Which means that Allah is watching you. You think you can get away with it? Try. You might get away with it on this earth. You might. Most of the time you don't. But if you do, there is the real judgment and the real day of reckoning in the hereafter. And this is what kept people in check. That high moral authority. If we want to remedy the social ills of a society that is non-Muslim, you have to go through the element of 
La ilaha illallah. Instill it in people. Make them understand it. And once they accept it, then it's very easy for you to say, well, if, since you accepted it, then Allah says about this issue, this and that. And Rasulullah when he sent Mu'adh radiallahu anhu arda to Yemen, what did he tell him? In sequence. He did not tell him, as soon as you go there, tell them, oh you men, you are allowed to marry four women. He didn't say that. He didn't even tell him, tell them that you have to pay zakat. He didn't tell him. But he said, first, tell them that they have to worship only Allah Azza wa And once they accept it, and they had no problem with it, then you tell them, you have to translate this into action. It's not enough to have it as words. It's not enough to have it imprinted in your heart. You have to show it. And how do you show it? The first thing, tell them that they have to perform five salats a day. Did I make this up? It's the hadith. And once they perfect the salat, then you tell them that they have to pay the zakat. And then the rest of the laws. We don't start right away with telling the people how we treat our women in Islam and they don't even know what Islam is all about. So we don't need to tackle every single social ill that we have whether in this society or any society by tackling it directly. You have to go not really around it, at it face to face, but addressing the real issue. Why did it end up like this? Why would a father abuse, sexually abuse his children? It's sick. It is sick. But why did it happen? You know, you don't see a normal person doing everything right by the book one day, and the next day changes become someone who abuses children. It just does not happen. It's impossible. Have you seen, is it possible that this beautiful group here, Today they are here. That tomorrow you see one of them in a bar drinking. Can you imagine? I venture to say it's impossible. It will never happen. Maybe a year from now. Maybe. But not overnight. So what will happen then over a span of a year or a month or two years that will make this beautiful person here listening to the words of Allah Azza wa Jal, devout, leaving all the pleasure of the world, listening to me, that a year from now he goes to drink, because some influences, some weakness in the faith. How do you bring them back? You close the bars? You blow up the bars? That's not the solution. You tell them how, how bad physically liquor is on you? That's not going to be the solution. Because I can find another reason to tell you that these intoxicants have benefits to you or for you. So that's not going to be a solution. The solution is taqwa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah azza wa jal is the creator. We need to worship him alone. And he said, do this and don't do that. In other words, we really have to tackle the illness, not the symptom. And the illness of the ills of the society, the origin illness is the lack of tawheed, lack of acceptance of a higher moral authority which is that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and unless we tell people where that high moral authority is then anything else we do will be meaningless how many of you know who Thomas Edison is have you heard of a character by the name yes who is he who was he 
Just raise your voice. I can't hear you. You invented the telephone. Ah, uh, no. You're far off. Come on. You can do better than that. Yes. Light bulb. Thomas Edison is the one who invented the light bulb. When he died, he had literally hundreds, if not thousands, of inventions that are patented in his name. You know, patents, that means it's registered in his name. No one else can use it. He invented the light bulb. And then he had the laboratory. And in the laboratory, he employed people. And the condition was that every employee will have to invent X number of new inventions a week. And if he does not invent a new invention in his laboratory, he's out. Now, how can you invent new things? You really don't. All of it is derived from the bulb. You know, the light bulb, look of how many things that were invented after the light bulb, which takes the principal formula actually from the light bulb. That's the origin of things. And you can extrapolate things until eternity. So many things that we enjoy nowadays came only from that bulb. Even though it came at the hands of different people, not Thomas Edison, but everything falls to the ingratitude to Thomas Edison for inventing that light bulb from which things have derived. I liken this, of course, that the Tawheed is the origin of things. Once you master it, there, are no, there, are, there is no end to the, to the beauty that you can enjoy in this life which are derived from the Tawheed. All our illnesses, all our problems, all our anxieties will be solved with that uh, original bulb, light bulb, which is the Tawheed. However, when we look in the seerah, in the hadith of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam, we see something like this. An al-Bashir ibn Nu'man, an al-Nu'man ibn Bashir, radiyallahu anhu wa arda, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sallam, مثل القائم على حدود الله والمدهن فيها كمثل قوم استهموا على سفينة فأصاب بعضهم علىها وأصاب بعضهم أسفلها فكان الذين في أسفلها إذا أرادوا أن يستقوا مروا على من فوقهم فآذوهم فقالوا لو أن خرقنا في نصيبنا خرقا ولم نؤذي من فوقنا, من فوقنا فإن تركوهم وما أرادوا غرقوا وغرقوا جميعا وإن ضربوا على أيديهم نجوا ونجوا جميعا بأبي أنت وأمي يا رسول الله رسول الله عليه الصلاة والسلام said in a hadith which means the example of those who guard guard the boundaries of Allah and those who violate it is the example of a group of people who wanted to cross a river. So they boarded a ship. And the ship, as you know, usually has two decks, upper deck and lower deck. And they cast a lot. So some of them, their lot was to stay in the upper deck. And some of them, their lot was to stay in the lower deck. And the ship sailed. The people in the lower deck 
as they wanted to drink water, they will go up, lower their buckets into the river, and bring the water. And every time they go up, they will disturb the people upstairs. You know, the noise, splashing of water. And out of their uh, concern, the people on the lower deck said, well, you know, we're really bothering the people on the upper deck. And we don't want to bother them. What if we dig a hole in our shear? Dig a hole in the bottom of the ship and we take the water so that we will not bother the people on the upper deck. Make sense? Make sense? Yes, it does. You don't want to disturb the others. Rasulullah says, what means? If they left them, if the people on the upper deck left the people in lower deck to do what they plan to do, they will drown and everyone will drown. But if they stop them, they will save themselves and everybody will be saved. This hadith usually is given in the subject of al-amru bil-ma'roof and nahi al-munkar, which is to enjoin that which is good and forbid that which is evil. A Muslim is to enjoin everything that's good, we support it. We are part of it. We, if it's not there, we will initiate it. And if it's already there, we will be behind it. Whatever it takes, that's enjoining ma'roof. But if we see evil, we stop it, we prevent it, we change it. The same way like these two people of the deck on, in, on the ship. Remember that the people in the lower deck, were they evil ones? Were they evil ones? Were they wrongdoers? They were good people. They had good intention. They did not want to disturb the people in the upper deck. However, good intention will not justify their action. Good intention is one thing. I have to deal with the results. Good intention is for you, between you and your maker. I have to deal with the result of your work. The result of your work is you're going to make me drown. And I have to stop you. I don't care what your intention was. And I don't care what justification you give. If you intend to do something that will harm me as an individual, harm the whole community, I have to stop you. Where do you tie this with what we said as a da'iyah, you do not solve people's problems initially. You actually refer them to tawheed. You solve it or reconcile it this way. If you are going as a da'iyah, usually as a group like Jimas is, a, is, a, is a, an organization that is an organization of da'wah. Jimas cannot go and say to the homosexual, stop homosexualities and march onto the streets. That will not be their proper place. But Jimas' responsibility is go and tell people, La ilaha illallah, tawheed. Go to the core of the problem. At the lower level, which is you and I as individuals, we have to tackle these daily issues, which are the ills of the society. Yes, still through the process of Tawheed, but actually also tackling the issue itself. Sometimes even without Tawheed, sometimes. But in general, the bigger umbrella, the bigger da'wah has to be from La ilaha illallah, 
the smaller level, our day-to-day basis, we have to deal with these issues. If I see my neighbor cheating in any form or shape, I have to say, shame on you. Shame on you. You cheat? How would you like somebody cheats you? You tackle the issue. But this was on an individual level. But if you were to give a lecture to a group of people, you don't say, don't pe- oh, people, don't cheat. You're a social reformer now. And you have no value. Or your value will be limited at best. You talk to them about Tawheed. And then how the Tawheed will prevent you from cheating. So while we're ordered to enjoin that which is good and forbid that which is evil, there are also the bigger element of um, uh, the, uh, the element of Tawheed. Now, how do we manifest all this in ourselves? We have to be at definitely a different level than the average citizen. We cannot be an average citizen. If you want to propagate the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you want to change this society towards the betterment, then you have to be the example. And the example is, it is not enough anymore for us the Muslims to be good. Good is not good enough anymore. For me to be good is not good enough anymore. You have to be excellent. There is a far great difference between good and excellent. There is a far great difference between a muhsin and a mu'min. And there is a great difference between a mu'min and a Muslim. A Muslim is your grade one. And as you graduate and grow up, in your commitment to this deen, you become a mu'min. And as you become near perfection, you become a muhsin. And there's a great difference between all these levels. And the same thing, we definitely cannot be bad. We definitely cannot be average. We are no good being only good. The only way we will be able to strive, the only way we will be able to serve our deen and serve those poor people around us to save them out of the misery that they live in and they think they live in luxury is for us to be excellent. Excellent in our work. Excellent in our honesty. Excellent in our speech. Excellent in our behavior. Excellent in treating our families. Excellent in our education. Nothing should be left to be less than excellent. And excellence is what Rasulullah taught us. For 40 years, Rasulullah was as good and excellent as no one else can match him. And yet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never commissioned him to be the Prophet. Was Rasulullah less perfect at age 30 than age 40? Did he still have some faults that he had to rectify? That Allah Azza wa Jal let him wait until he was age 40 and then said, now you are commissioned. For 40 years, Allah Azza wa Jal wanted Rasulullah to be established as the reference for everything that is excellent. He had to be. Because if he was good, he would not have made it. There were many good people. If he was bad, forget it. He, the only chance of him making it that he had to be excellent. And in order to prove excellence, you need time. 
time for people to get to know you, for people get to be acquainted with you. And it took 40 years in the case of Rasulullah to be established. And that's why when the, finally the message came to him, his enemies could not refute him. It was so difficult for them. How could they? They call him a liar, they cannot do that. They called him possessed by demons. They could not have done that. They knew it was a lie and it was a fabrication. Why? Because he got established. And for us to go and say to people, come to Tawheed and come to Islam, and our character is shaky, you will not be able to make it. We have to build our own character to be more influential. If I'm a bum, if I don't have good grades in school, and I, I don't attend the classes which I'm supposed to, and then I go to people, oh come, Islam is so beautiful. What if Islam is so beautiful, how come it's not reflected on you? How come it's not reflected on you to make you look beautiful? You look ugly when you do not do your job properly. Or when you're an employee, you come five or ten minutes late and leave half an hour early and have the time you spend it drinking coffee and on the phone or reading a newspaper. You have no position, you're in no position to call people to Islam and tell them that Islam is beautiful because if it is really beautiful, it should have rubbed on you and make you look good and not a cheater. We have a big responsibility to solve these people's ills. And these people's ills are not only their own, it is mine too. Because think of it, those who are child molesters, which is one of the social ills of this community, the non-Muslim communities. Would it affect me? You better believe it would. Where is he going to get his victims from? Do you think he's going to go in the streets and check with the children and say, oh, do you belong to a Christian family? I'll molest you. You belong to a Muslim family, I'll leave you alone. He will pick any child, my child and yours. So it will affect me sooner or later. Those who have AIDS, because of their homosexuality and drug use and whatnot, will affect me if it had not already did not. These people are in the public schools as teachers. What do you think they will teach my child or yours? They'll teach them morality? They'll teach them what is right and what is wrong? Or will they teach them the deviant way of life? So we are the sufferers too. So it is in our best interest that we correct this. But we have to correct it in the proper way. In September, don't worry, not September 2001. In September 1995, a big event took place, and many Muslims to this date are not aware of it. A conference was held in Beijing, China, under the auspices of the United Nations. And the title of it was Women. It was an international women conference which is held every 10 years on different continent. And that conference title was Women Empowerment and, um, and Development. And of course, the title does not reflect of anything that's dangerous, but when you go there, and we did go, you saw the attack on Islam that it was targeted to be destroyed because it stood in the way for those who wanted to control the world through the process of immorality, which takes many forms. And we tried our best to refute and present Islam in the best way. 
I'm telling you all this to, to tell you what I want to pass on to you. In two separate occasions. Two separate sisters stood up and gave lectures about what Islam really is. Did a wonderful, magnificent job. And in both places, two different days, two different places, two different audiences, I heard the same event took place after the lecture, word for word, which was mind-boggling for me. But it was an eye-opener too. In both places, in the first one, a woman from Belgium stood up, and in the second one, a woman from Britain stood up. And they both said exactly the same word. They said, you know, we hear you. They were addressing the lecturer. We hear you talk about Islam and how beautiful it is. How beautiful it is. But when I look at you Muslims, I'm horrified. When I look at you Muslims, I am horrified. I think the message is very clear. I think the message is very clear. Islam is beautiful. It's not ugly. It is we who are ugly and we rub it on our deen. Unless we beautify ourselves in the process of our deen, we will not be able to convince people. Haven't you heard about the story of a man, true, who was holding a glass of wine in a pub and he was ridiculing a Christian, telling him how ridiculous his religion is and how Islam is beautiful with a glass of wine in his hand. Tell me, tell me, who would believe this man? We have to show ourselves in the best way we should, not as a show, but in reality. In other words, we have to have misdaqiyah, we have to have truthfulness in us. The same way as Shu'aib said to his people, وَمَا أُرِيدُ أَنْ أُخَالِفَكُمْ لِمَا أَنْهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ I do not want to preach to you something, but I do the opposite. I tell you, be good to your wives, and I beat up on my wife. I tell you, don't cheat on the scale and the measure, and I'm the first one who cheats. And I tell you, be hard workers, and I'm the first one who is lazy and live on welfare. Cannot make it. There's no way. We have to have that in ourselves and also we have to establish our product because it's not enough that we show it in ourselves is the product of this. How do we translate this to a bigger uh, uh, form? It's through our institutions. Our institutions have to be reflective of us. We have to have our own schools which will graduate children. Not only are they good? They have to be excellent in their studies, but also excellent in their morals, excellent in their commitment, excellent in caring for the ills of the society and the community. We have to improve on our masajid, the way it's run and what we teach in it, and also their physical appearance. It's physical appearance, it's cleanliness, the way it looks inside and outside. We have to have our own institutions of hospitals and clinics to show the people what a Muslim doctor can do and what a Muslim nurse, male or female, can do. 
we have to found, we have to establish and support the charitable organization which really cares about those who are in need. Be it Muslims, which is our top priority, or non-Muslims as a way of da'wah. All these we have to keep uh, in mind. And if I am to leave you after all this for the past hour with only one thing, I just want you to th want you to leave with this: that as a group, we solve all the social ills which are outlined in your brochures through the process of tawhid. As individuals, we still use the process of tawhid, but also on our own behavior, being the best example. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله العلي العظيم لي ولكم ولسائر المسلمين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله. Okay, we, we have some time left, inshallah, for questions. Um, please write the questions down and, and uh, submit them via paper, inshallah. And remembering that if you have a question, you should still leave it in the box that's uh, around here somewhere. There is a separate session for questions and answers. Um, this question, first one is, if we are talking to a person who does not believe in God at all, then how can we say this, for example, women's rights is the commandment of Allah, and they use this argument that God is unfair to women, that's why we don't believe in God. Um, I, I think I already answered that. You have the right, wrong approach. You approach it wrongly. You keep emphasizing on the one that you don't even talk about women or men or children. I mean, this is all his immaterial, has no value. This man has a bigger problem. This person has a bigger problem. You have to tackle his major problem. Yeah, he has to understand that there is only one deity worthy of worship. Once you succeed, then you can address these things. But if you have not succeeded, you never go to the next step. Never. It makes no difference. You'll be wasting your time and his too. Um, do we have to enjoin the good and forbid the evil in this society amongst the non-Muslims? Is it an obligation? Yes, absolutely, positively, no two way about it. We do not have double standard. We do not have double standard. If I'm to be truthful with you, I have to be truthful with the non-Muslims. Our deen tells us like this. Anyone who thinks otherwise, let him seek guidance from Allah because that's not our deen. We do not have double standard. Um, there's a question clarifying about, you mentioned Adam salam. How did Adam's children pro propagate if, if was this incest? Yes, this was done only one time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given permission that the, every time that Adam salam and his wife had children, they were twins. There'll be one boy and one girl. So the next time they have one boy and one girl, then the boy will marry the first girl and, and, and vice versa. But once that first generation got established, no more incest. Um, with respect to abortion, if a woman is, has been raped, for example, uh, the women, some women in Bosnia, is, uh, what is the situation with respect to that? 
That is left to the scholars, and in this particular case, the scholars have decreed that women are free. If they want to have abortion, then they are free to do so. If they want to keep their children, then they are free to do so, because this is a very unusual circumstance. In cases of, of uh, rape, the scholars, some of the scholars had given permission for uh, abortion, but also um, some scholars will not agree to it. So it has to be weighed on a case-by-case -case basis, what are the circumstances, what are the ramifications, but there is plenty of room for discussion in this, and there is no one set decision about this, but it is sufficient to say that this will, might be one of the situations in which abortion is permitted. Um, there's, there's some more questions here which are not related to the topic, so we're supposed to filter them out. Does anyone have a question from the floor that's related to the topic? Otherwise, uh, you can submit the questions on papers. The sisters should write their questions down, and there will be a separate session, inshallah, for questions and answers. Um, this question is, please could you advise us on how to deal with the issue of sex education of our children? Uh, the government of this country have introduced this teaching at school. And most of our children are in non-Muslim schools, and we're very short of uh, Islamic schools. So how do we deal with this problem? This is part of the uh, problem that I alluded to, and that is we have to have our own institutions. We have to have our own schools, we have to have our own clinics, we have to have our own charitable organizations, and so on. And unless we establish those, we are going to be faced with this problem. I don't know what the system is, so I really cannot answer your question directly, but I can tell you what we did in our area when we looked at the social study book, we found that was taught in the public school, we found there was a lot of errors in presenting Islam and Muslims. Now, how do you deal with it? You know, living in a so-called democratic society, we took it up with the school superintendent. We made a request, we met with him, and we brought this to his attention, that these were errors and misrepresents Islam. And his answer was, well, show me where the errors are, and let's discuss it. And gave us the books of social studies, and we went over it page by page. And we outlined the objectionable things, gave it back to him. All these were changed, and he went a step further. He felt that the reason this had happened is because of an awareness of the school system of Islam. So he did something unique. He asked us as a masjid, as a society, to help him out make a half an hour videotape which outlines Islam and what it's all about and its tenets and so on. 
which we did, then he made it mandatory in the beginning of every year for all the teachers to review this video before they are allowed to teach the subject of social studies. So there is room. But there is also the other way is that you and I sit here and curse and say these wicked people, how come they do this and we don't do anything about that. Take advantage of the system that you have and do it in the reasonable and the sensible way as we did. It might not, you, the system here might be different, but I doubt it. Take it up with the superintendent and object and look at the sex education if it is proper, support it. If it's improper, give them alternative. You can't say, no, we cannot accept it and walk away. Give them alternatives. What is your alternative for this? Of course we have alternative. And if you don't do it, and, and you should not do it as an individual. You should do it as an organization. An individual does not count. But as an organization that represents a group of you, it will have weight. I did not go there as an individual. I went there as a president of our community. And the response was positive. And it should be the way. So my answer to you is that go to those who are in charge of this. First of all, understand what the system is. What are being taught? Just because you heard sex education, you think it's all wrong, and you jump and you go there, you don't even know what is being taught, make you look like a fool. First of all, see what was taught and what are the items that you're objecting to and give them an alternative. And inshallah, things will work out. Allah Azza wa will make it easy for you, no doubt. Um, these two questions are similar, so I'll read them both out. The first one, is it possible that people are actually born with homosexual tendencies or is it certain that it's in society that uh, an individual goes in that direction? And the second related question is, what is the Islamic stance on people who say they are not catered for by any religion, such as hermaphrodites or transsexuals, or they say that they were born this way? The first answer, or the answer to the first question is no, there is no such thing. This is how the shaitan wants to uh, propagate this evil among people, that you were born this way. Why were they born this way? What is different? They have different chromosomes or different genes. This has not been proven, and it will never be proven. It's a deviant way. It's a deviant way, and that is all there is to it. If you allow this to pass as it is, who is to say, tomorrow, the thief will say, listen, don't you dare put me in a prison. I was born this way. You're going to chastise me because I was born this way? I was born as a thief. It's in my genes. The rapist. Hey, don't put me in a prison. It's not my fault. I wanted to be decent, but my genes took me over. Took over me and it made me do it. There is no end to, to this. We're not going to buy this argument. Find a better answer. The answer is no, 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 and absolutely Positively, no. And I don't care what they write in the medical and non-medical journals. It's all false. It's all fabricated. Read it. You will see the fabrication in it. And it's shameful that some of the journals will even print such a thing, which is all lies and fabrications. The second is that our religion 
answers and has ways of dealing with all the possibilities of the defects in births, including the hermaphrodites and, and, and so on. It is in the books of fiqh. So those people who say that what, where do they belong, you read in the books of fiqh and it tells you in detail how you deal with them. So that statement that there is no religion that caters to them is not true. Islam does. Uh, some, some brothers will argue that uh, you have to be an alim before you give the da'wah or to enjoin good or forbid bad. What is the level of knowledge required or does knowledge of the subject being discussed in particular is it significant? How much time do I have? Uh, 15 minutes. I have 15 minutes? Yeah. yeah. Okay, then I have enough time to address this. This is, this is a good question and it's important. I, the reason I ask because either I do it totally or don't do it. A man came to Ibn Abbas and said, Ibn Abbas, I want to go out and enjoin Ma'roof and forbid Munkar. Ibn Abbas is wise. He said, do you think you have reached this level? The man said, well, I hope. He said, well, if you feel secure from not being held to account by three ayat in the books of Allah, from the book of Allah Azza wa Jal, then go ahead and do it. He said, what are these three ayat? He said, the first one is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Surah Al-Baqarah, that you do, do you order people to do that which is good and forget your own selves? Did you practice this? The man said, no. He said, then what is the second one? He said, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Surah Al-Saf, Ya ayyuhal ladheena aman, lima taquluna ma la tafa'lun. Oh, you who believe, why do you say that which you do not practice? Do you practice this? The man said, no. He said, what is the third one? He said, the statement of the righteous person. Of course, he was referring to Shu'ayb, alayhi salam. When he told his people, and I do not want to preach to you something and do something different or opposite. Have you practiced this? The man said, no. Then Ibn Abbas said, then you know what? You better start with yourself. You better start with yourself before preaching to people. Now, if you look at this story, this, this was narrated by Ibn Kathir, alayhi rahmatullah, in his book of Tafsir, in Tafsir Surah Al-Baqarah. When you look at this story on the surface, it tells you that you really should not preach to people unless you have attained certain level, which is true. But what it is saying is that you are not going to be effective and, in, and influential until you have some basic elements. And one of them is that whatever you're going to preach to people, you have practiced it yourself. And you know the best and the most influential preacher throughout history was Rasulullah He never preached anything without him practicing it first. He never forbade anything except that he was the first one to abstain from it. 
And that's why he was influential and effective in his da'wah. No one can challenge him. But when the imam stands on the pulpit and say, people shame on you beating on your wives, and you look at it, his wife and she's got bruises here and lumps here, and every day she's in the emergency room being treated for trauma, how am I going to believe him? But should he not say that? Here is the question. He should say it. He should say it. Because that's the truth. He's not lying. He's telling the people, don't beat your wives. It's shameful to beat your wives. Rasulullah never beat any woman, let alone his wives. It's shameful for a man to lay his hand on his wife. It's not manly. It is not honorable. He has to say this even though he violates it. But he's not going to be influential. So the answer to this question is that no, you don't have to be a scholar to go and preach to people. But you will be more influential if you had good knowledge and you practiced it. And Rasulullah said, that tell on my behalf even one ayah. So the minimum you should know is at least one ayah. One hadith, one statement, one incident, that is sufficient. If that's what you know, that is what you know, and you are obliged to propagate it. Wallah subhanahu wa ta'ala alam. Jazakumullah khairan, Sheikh. That's the uh, end of this session, but please remain seated. There's some important announcements now, inshallah. This might be a bit confusing, but we need to uh, pay attention because the program has changed <coughs> due to some practical difficulties in getting the food.